Good evening, everyone. The scripture reading this evening is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And if you have a Bible, you may want to turn with me there. And as you do, let me just say what a privilege it is to be in Texas. You don't believe that any more than I do. No, it's good, it's good to be with you this evening. Thank you very much. And it's a great honor always to be asked to speak before presbyteries in our denomination. It is a great honor, and I take it um, humbly, and we'll seek the Lord's blessing as we read his word and reflect on it together. The word of God in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. May God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, these are words that your apostle wrote thousands of years ago. But tonight, living where we are in this place and in this time, we turn to you. We call you our teacher. We trust no one like we trust you. We hope in no one like we hope in you. We long to see no one like we long to see you. And so we ask you now, humbly, please send Holy Spirit to us. May he come and may he fill every heart in this room that we may see this truth, that we may hear it, that we may live it. For your name's sake, for your glory, please. Amen. I live in Orlando, Florida, and... Those of you who know my life, you probably know that I fly in and out of Orlando all the time. And the contrast between people who are in the airplane with me who are flying into Orlando and those who are leaving Orlando is striking. I mean, I can tell you this, when I go back on Sunday and I'm in an airplane which is usually filled up with plenty of children... On their way to Orlando, they are so excited they can hardly stand themselves. They are so eager to go to Orlando that they're jumping up and down and their parents have to strap them in with double seat belts and things sometimes. But I can also tell you when I leave Orlando, those very same children who have spent two, three, four, five days, their parents are eager to get out of there. (laughs) But those kids, they just go begrudgingly at best. And a lot of them are in tears the whole time. It's a striking contrast. In the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Now let me just tell you what that means is, for the Apostle Paul, the thought of going to Rome to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others was like being on the airplane going to Orlando. I cannot believe I get to do this. I'm so excited about it, I can hardly stand myself. I am eager to do it. But let's just admit it to ourselves. You and I, today, seldom have that kind of eagerness. 
When it comes to preaching in a church week after week after week, and even more so listening to the same guy preach week after week after week, we're often more like the children leaving Orlando than the ones coming. I am eager to bring the good news to you who are at Rome. Now, very often in our land today and in our way of thinking, even in our own blessed denomination, we can't quite get the force of what the apostle is saying when he says, I'm eager to preach the good news to you who are at Rome because for us the good news has been reduced down to something that all of us can easily believe in. And that is that if you'll just believe in Jesus, then he'll save you from your sins, he'll help you psychologically, He's the great therapist, after all. He may even heal a few relationships, and when you die, you'll go to heaven forever. Now, you can believe that. That's a fairly easy thing to believe, but that's not all that the Apostle Paul meant when he said the word good news. The word good news for him as a Jew, knowing the Bible, unlike many of us today, he knew that that expression good news meant the victory of the kingdom of God over the evil empire of Rome. Buena noticia, that the kingdom of God is victorious over sin and death, that Jesus' kingdom is going to spread to the ends of the earth. And he was eager to preach about that in the city of Rome, the capital of the evil empire in his day. I mean, today, if you go home tonight, sisters, and you find that your husband has purchased two tickets to Rome, that's going to be a good thing, right? But that's not the way it was in Paul's day. Think of it more like going home tonight and finding out your husband bought you two tickets to uh, Mecca. And he says, sweetheart, we're going there to tell people about Jesus. Now you have a sense of what Paul's talking about the capital of the great evil empire of our day. And yet the apostle says, I'm like a child on his way to Orlando, Florida. I'm eager to do this. How was that even possible? A lot of you here meet young ministers, and you can say, yeah, those young guys, they're so eager. You know, the RUF ministers, they're out there ready to go for it, right? First week or two, anyway, first semester or two. Eagerness is a part of youth, and I think that's a wonderful thing. But Paul's not speaking out of youth here. The book of Romans was not written early in his ministry when you might have expected him to have a lot of fire in his belly for the good news of Jesus. The apostle Paul had seen how he could preach over and over and people not listen. The Apostle Paul had seen churches that he had planted fall by the wayside with division and anger and bitterness. He had seen good friends of his, comrades of his, desert him on the mission field. He had seen what all of us in this room would identify as the failures of his ministry. And yet he still says, I am eager. 
You see, the apostle, when he writes these words, are more like the rest of us in this room, not those young guys, but the rest of us who've been at this for a lot of time, who've seen a lot of disappointments, a lot of failure, a lot of hardship. The old guys, like me. And yet he says, I am eager to proclaim that Jesus the King is the victor over the evil of this world. I'm eager to do it. Why? How? How is it possible? Maybe if we can figure out how he was able to be this way, maybe even the old guys in here can get a spark of life in them again. Huh, John? What do you think? Is it possible? Maybe those of us who have been ministering for decades could actually find that kind of eagerness swelling up inside of us if we can hear how the Apostle Paul had it at this stage in his life. Well, he tells us why this was true of him. You know the verse, verse 16. Why am I so eager to do this? It's because I am not ashamed of that good news of God's kingdom. I'm not ashamed of it. Well, who would have ever thought he was? This is the Apostle Paul. Who would have ever thought for a moment that he is ashamed of the good news of Jesus? Why did he waste the ink writing that down on that piece of papyrus? I am not ashamed. I think it's because he knew something about himself and he knew something about all of us, especially those of us who are involved in ministry. How easy it is, how normal it is, how it's par for the course that over time you begin to become just a little bit mm, embarrassed just a little bit hesitant, just a little bit of shame comes over us when we find ourselves having to talk about what we believe Jesus is going to do. I've been a professional religious worker for more than 45 years now. I cannot believe that, but it's true. Professional means I make my living out of my faith. That's a hard thing to do for a long time. But you would think that after 40-some years that I would never have any hesitation about letting people know what I believe to be true about Jesus and the good news about him, wouldn't you? I mean, you would just sort of figure, well, of course. But I am just like every other Christian I know, and it's this way. I just want to have a private life and have people leave me alone. <laughs> Hallelujah. That got an amen out of a Presbyterian. I heard it right over there. Where, who said it? That's right here it is. Now, in Orlando, I don't know what it's like out here, but in my part of Orlando, there is not a manly barbershop, okay, where men go and only men go to get their haircuts. And sisters, let me just tell you what that's like. They're just in a barbershop. They are just like they are at home. They don't want to talk. Now, you can talk if you want to, but you're not forced into talking. You just say, give me the regular, and that's, the, that's all you have to say. Done. Just like at home, right? Oh, I almost got another amen <laughs> from a female voice. Well, that's the way it is in manly barbershops, but not in these unisex places that I have to go to in my part of town because they train the people there to talk to you. It's a nightmare. 
I mean, they look at the ticket and they say, well, hi, Richard. How are you today? Fine. And I know what's coming. Within a couple of minutes, you know as well as I do what's coming. Well, Richard, what do you do? I'm a teacher. <laughs> You're a teacher? Well, where do you teach? In a seminary? In a seminary. Are you a rabbi? No. Are you a priest? No, they don't know what a Protestant is in my part of town. I guess the beard makes them think I'm a rabbi. And that's okay so far, except that they still don't stop. And usually, it happens so often, it's amazing to me, and I dread it every time. Eventually, we get around to what I do. I'm a missionary. What I do. Why do you do that? Well, it's because of the things I believe. Well, what do you believe? And I end up having to talk about things like Jesus is the only way of salvation that Jesus is going to fix the whole world, that there's no hope in politicians, there's no hope in law enforcement, there's no hope for the world in anything but this one man who lived 2,000 years ago, his name was Jesus, and that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe in him. One time, you know the girl often that is sweeping up the hair, low person on the totem pole, she was standing behind me doing this. I wanted so much to tell her, I can see you in the mirror. (laughs) Now, I let her off the hook. I didn't do it. But that's their attitude. They just can't believe this crazy old man is coming into their hair shop. And I know that. And so I just pray, Lord, please don't let them ask me what I do. Don't you find yourself that way? When you go to the store, when you walk down the street, when you bump into somebody you don't know, Lord, Just please don't let them ask me what I believe. That's especially true when we associate what we believe with failure, with disappointment. We're embarrassed at what ministers of the gospel are doing in public. When we bring shame to Jesus, then we feel ashamed of him. But did you notice Paul did not say, I am ashamed of the gospel? I'm not. And why not? It's because he knew something about that good news of Jesus. And I mean just the words that we speak about Jesus and what he is going to do in this world. It's going to be amazing. But just the words, just the message, just the story of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he will do one day, there's something very special about it. Do you remember what he said? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I know something that the world doesn't know. That the good news about Jesus has a power in it. It's got power in it. Now, I think we all know that human words are powerful, aren't they? In fact, we live in a day when words are used primarily for their power. But you know even on a day-to-day basis that if somebody insults you, it's got power over you. It makes you feel bad. Somebody praises you, they have power over you. They make you feel good. And you say, please do that again, please. I need a little more of that. Tell me a little more about how great I am. We all know that human words have power. But the apostle's not talking about that kind of power. 
as powerful as human speech is, and it really is powerful, just think about what your words to your children have done to them for good and for ill. What your words to your spouse has done to her or to him for good or for ill. It's got power. But not the gospel. It's not human power. He says it has the power of God himself in it. Do you still believe it? I mean, understand what we're saying here, that the one who made everything, it has his power in it. The one who is so great that he sustains the whole universe moment by moment, it has his power in it. The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Not the kind of power that makes nice people a little bit nicer or helps a person get into the right social club, or helps a person attach him or herself to the right group, or to have a more moral life. No, the kind of power that reaches into an individual's life that is destined for eternal judgment and gives them, gives them everlasting life. That kind of power. The kind of power that heals a marriage and brings a family into the kingdom of the victorious king. That kind of power. The kind of power that will one day make all things new. That kind of power. And can't you say to yourself, if I was really convinced, if I were really convinced of that kind of power, I'd be eager to share it. When I was growing up in high school, I was, before I became a believer, I was a fairly ordinary student in my high school. And one of the things we did was we stood at our parking lot and we watched to see what kind of cars people would drive into our parking lot, the teachers and the students. And if they drove a really nice car, they were important and valuable human beings. So they drove really crummy cars, then they were worthless human beings. Sounds like you and me at this traffic light, doesn't it? Well, for us, that was very important to us. And I can remember one time, one morning, when a fellow from West Virginia, I grew up in Southwest Virginia, and we had to feel superior to somebody. <laughs> That's West Virginia, okay? Oh, boy. I remember there was a new student from West Virginia who drove a car into our parking lot. It had to be at least 15, 20 years old. It was back in the days when old windshields would cloud up. The headlights were cockeyed. There were rusted spots all over it, and it shook like this as it went down the road. And he turned right in front of us, went right through the gauntlet. And rather than hiding down like this, ashamed of this car like he should have been, he had his one arm up in the window. He looked over and says, hey, y'all, how you doing? And he drove on in and got out of his car and went to class. We couldn't believe it. So on Friday night, we were going to let him know what a worthless human being he was. We had another tradition, that was the cruising tradition, up and down Williamson Road, a little six-lane road that you pull up to the traffic light, and you know what you do, you hum like that, and you wait to hear if the person next to you responds that way. You don't look, because it might be your mom, <laughs> but if you hear it, you know you've got to race to the next traffic light. So 
a bunch of us went out and found Scott and his hick wreck. That's what we called it all week long. And a lot of us found him. A lot of us raced him. And he beat every single one of us hands down. <laughs> it was amazing. Later on that night at the hamburger place, I'm sorry to be so typical American. I am, though. At the hamburger place later that night, Scott pulled in. He didn't say a word. He pulled in right next to us, and he got out of his car, and he opened his hood. Now, his car was old, rusted, cockeyed headlights, bumper twisted. But Scott knew something about his car that made him unashamed, something we didn't know. And you know what it was. It had power under the hood. He had rebuilt that engine from the ground up with all the four-barrel magnum this, that, and the other you used to put on cars, and he had turned that thing into a racing machine. No wonder he wasn't ashamed. No wonder he wasn't ashamed. Don't you know that you know the secret about Jesus? And that is that the story of Jesus has power under the hood, the power of God under the hood. Now, if it's been a while since you've seen it with your own eyes, you may have forgotten it. I can't tell you how wonderfully invigorating it is to share the good news of Jesus with someone, see them believe and be transformed by the power of the simple gospel message. It's just happened to me recently. I was in Indonesia, and I became very sick in a pagan's house, utter pagan, an American pagan, who had moved to Bali. I got so sick, I was throwing up all over his bathroom, and I had fainted and fallen down on the floor in his bathroom, and he came in and he saw me, He got on his hands and knees down in my vomit, and he looked in my face, and he said, Brother, you're not going to make it. And I opened my eyes, and by God's mercy, I said, That's okay. I'm ready for this. They got me to the hospital a few hours later. I survived, obviously. (laughs) Came home, and this man texted me. I can't get over what you said. You're ready for this. I'm not. So we spent two hours on the phone in Montgomery, Alabama. He was still in Bali, Indonesia, and he made the most credible profession of faith in Jesus I have ever had in my entire life, and I've had a lot of them. It was phenomenal. This man did not even know what sin was. He said, Richard, I've got this heavy negative karma on me, and I can't get rid of it. And I said, Charlie, that's what Christians call sin. And he said, that's sin? He's a Jewish background. He did not know that Jesus was a Jew. He did not know that Jesus was the king of the Jews. That's what he did not know. He knew nothing about Jesus, except that it was a cuss word. And yet, the power of the good news of Jesus is so great that it went through the digital world from Montgomery, Alabama to Bali, 
and it changed that man forever. And since that time, I get texts from him every evening, every morning. He's found it. We pray for him to find a church. He found a church. We pray for him to have a ministry. He's found a ministry. We pray for him to be baptized. He was baptized. We pray for him to take communion. He takes communion. All these things are happening. It's the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen. Now, do you know what that does to me? That convinces me once again of the power of the good news of Jesus. I've seen it with my eyes, not 20 years ago. Not 10 years ago, just recently. And brothers and sisters, if you have not seen the power of the gospel at work in someone's life, you need to get busy and put it out there and see it again. If you want to have eagerness in your soul to let unbelievers know who Jesus is and what he will do for them, what Jesus is going to do for the world, you need to tell somebody and watch the power of God at work. So rather than frowning at the cashier at Walmart, smile at her. Rather than just inviting your fellow church members to your house for a party, invite that person across the street who doesn't look like you, doesn't talk like you, doesn't have the life orientations that you have, and bring them to your party. And just Let them know what you believe about Jesus. It will turn you on as a church leader, and I can tell you this too, it will begin to turn your congregations on to bringing the good news to others. And isn't that what you need more than practically anything else right now in your church? They're looking to you. They're looking to you. Does he believe or is he ashamed? And when they see that you can share the good news of Jesus with someone, they come to Christ and you don't die, they will discover they will not die too. And it will be a glorious day. This presbytery covers about 1,000 square miles. Is that about right? Give or take a few hundred. Okay. Do you think the people in this region of this country understand the good news of Jesus? Most of them don't have a clue. It is time, if we do not move quickly, it is time for us to mobilize. If we do not move quickly, we are going to become like our brothers and sisters in the past, just another Christian graveyard. Yep, it's got power, but you know what else this good news has? A reach. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or to the Greek. That's a little bit of a history lesson. We all know that. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. New Testament, Jewish book. All right, we got it. All right, then it came to the Gentiles, the Gentile dogs like you and me. Great. We like that history lesson because we're at the end of the story. But something much more profound than that is on the apostle's mind as he contemplates going to Rome. It's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles, and I'm going right to the capital city of their empire. The apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he was convinced of something, 
And that is that he was not a part of a dying religion, but that he was a part of a religion that was going to transform the world. That he was not a part of a losing cause, but that he was a part of a winning cause. That Jesus was going to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. If you believe that, how could you possibly be ashamed of it? Now, I know it's not going very well for us, but don't give up hope because the good news of Jesus is doing just fine in other parts of the world. And if if it becomes true that in our part of the world that we must now go into a time when the Christian faith diminishes more and more and more, so be it. I hope you all saw the Winston Churchill movie, Darkest Hour. A lot of you will know this speech I'm referring to. It's this great speech when Churchill came before Parliament and said, we're not making a deal with the Nazis. We're going to do it. That meant that the Isle, the British Isles were under serious threat. And for all practical purposes, the game was over for Britain. And a lot of us know the first lines or the middle portion of that speech where he says, we'll fight them in the paddocks, we'll fight them in the hills, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the... So on and so on, right? Until victory. Surrender is not an option. You remember all that? But until I watched that movie, I didn't understand what he said at the end of that speech. And it is our great hope. I'm going to paraphrase it so it'll make sense. (laughs) He was too eloquent for us. Basically, he said this. If the unthinkable happens and the Nazis take the British Isles, not to worry. That in God's good time, the empire will rise up. India, Africa, China. The empire will rise up. And the new world will come back and save the old. You see, brothers and sisters, even if in God's providence we are facing a time of darkness here in this country, we have nothing to fear. Because Jesus' empire is all over this world. And your great-grandchildren may very well have to be missionized. And they may very well be missionized by Africa, by China, by Latin America. Thanks be to God, because the new world will liberate the old. You see, our kingdom cannot fail because the good news is for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The whole world belongs to him. You know, they call that place down there in Orlando Disney World. 
Mickey Mouse world, all kinds of world. Well, think about the world Jesus is bringing. Get on the airplane. Go there like a little child. Oh, I can't wait to get there. I am so eager to announce the good news of Jesus because it's got the power of God under the hood and because it is going to transform the entire earth.